Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 13, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm here in Corona land still, here in my home office, looking out the window at uh, sunniness right now. We just watched, uh, we're in a middle, our family's in the middle of a Harry Potter marathon because my 17-year-old daughter, Emma, suggested it. And when you suggest a Harry Potter marathon, that means uh, eight films, back to back to back to back to back. Um, the early ones, not so good. The later ones, pretty dark and intense. We've been watching a Harry Potter film every night since last week. We're up to the last two, which is a, a split version of the last book in the series. And so I'm looking out my window at all the sunniness outside, and that's just like a welcome relief because the last few films of the Harry Potter series, if you've watched them, are dark and smoky and cloudy and foreboding. <laughs> so it's... Uh, Actually, a happy thought to, to remember that there is a sun out there. And in the end, spoiler alert, Harry beats Voldemort and the sun comes out again, which is um, a hopeful reminder to us uh, in our love for redemption stories, of which Harry Potter is one. The sun coming out again is a common theme um, in one metaphorical way or another. And though we live in Corona land now, uh, in the fog of it, the smoke of it, the foreboding of it, the sun will come out again. It always does. Uh, this is the redemptive story that God has planted in the natural world and in Jesus himself. So, so welcome. Uh, hope you're uh, uh, holding up okay uh, on home quarantine right now. And I know many of you have uh, many reasons to be anxious and afraid right now. Uh, no better time than to draw near to the one who uh, offered himself as our refuge in the midst of anxiety and fear. So let's, uh, let's launch. Uh, by the way, uh, 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 just in case you're interested in reading something during this time when anxiety and fear uh, somehow are descending, please do uh, head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of The God Who Fights For You, a book I wrote for people who are in the middle of anxiety and fear. Uh, the God Who Fights For You, that's at amazon.com. Just uh, look it up if you want something to read that can be a companion to you in the midst of this. Go for it. Also, uh, I've noticed that, um, that a, a lot of people are picking up a copy of the Jesus Center Bible right now. Uh, again, no better thing to do than to pick up a copy of the Jesus Center Bible. And, and if you know people that are in need right now, that are really gripped with uh, anxiety and need hope and uh, good news, so to speak, then um, head on over to group.com and uh, just plug into the search bar, Jesus Center Bible, and you'll see all the different versions we have there. Um, you can order them. It'll show up at your home. If you don't have one already, you can get started on this unique Bible that uh, draws you to Jesus no matter where you are in Scripture. Um, 
It has uh, eight or 10 uh, features in it that are unique to this Bible that will help you to see Jesus and to find him no matter where you're reading. So either get it for yourself or get it for somebody you think you, know, you might need it. So we're in the eighth episode of a new series I've been calling Foundations, where we're exploring foundational truths connected to Jesus and his mission in our lives. And today, the title of this episode is Jesus in the Dark. Jesus in the Dark. So you could, we could say Jesus in Harry Potter, at least the last three films. So remember what my friend uh, uh, Bruxy Cavey wrote in his intro to Genesis in the Jesus Center Bible. I mentioned this in our last episode. Bruxy is a, a pastor of a very large church in Canada. He's uh, one of the writers I recruited to write Jesus-centered introductions to every book in the Jesus-centered Bible. And if you remember from the last episode, uh, he wrote the intro to Genesis in, in the Jesus-centered Bible. And there's a, there's a little part of what he wrote that I, I wanted to branch off of uh, for this episode. Here's what he wrote. At the beginning of all things, you would not be surrounded by darkness, but by light. Because God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So here Bruxy is pointing out that when we think about the beginning of everything, which what Genesis, the Genesis account of creation takes us back to the beginning of everything, we often think of uh, the time before creation as completely dark. You know, we, we know what formless means. But it can't be true that where God is, there is darkness because he is described as light in 1 John 1, 5. So Bruxy is pointing out that contrary to our expectations, uh, if we were there at the, uh, before the beginning of all things, we would be in the presence of God and we would be in the presence of light because there is no darkness in him. So we've heard this phrase that Jesus is the light of the world. And uh, very often, that's one of the ways to describe him. And it goes back to that description in 1 John that God is light and there's no darkness in him. So, of course, Jesus is the light of the world. When he is born in that Bethlehem stable, you could say that light descends on the, on the earth. So light is not only central to his physical presence, but it's also a metaphor for his impact on the world and in our lives. And when I say it's central to his physical presence, you might remember in Matthew 17, the story of the transfiguration on the mountain where Jesus takes um, his three um, closest leaders with him, Peter, James, and John, and ascends the mountain to meet with Moses and Elijah. Uh, of course, Peter, James, and John did not know that that's what was gonna happen when they went to the top of that little mountain. But there they saw Jesus in conversation with Moses and Elijah. And right before them, it says in Matthew 17, Jesus' appearance is transformed. His face uh, becomes like the sun, and his clothes turn white as light. So literally his physical appearance is sort of revealed to them, that, that this blinding light that he embodies, is it, the transfiguration actually reveals that that aspect of who Jesus is. It's metaphorical, but it's also uh, uh, actually in reality. That's how they experience him, is this blinding light. So, so, and of course, he is light metaphorically in our, in our world right now and in our lives. But light here, I think, is a mud puddle. Uh, we think we know what light means, but do we really? Especially now when the darkness that we're living through 
is producing so much fear and anxiety. I think it's important for us to understand what light really means and not jump over that as quickly as we typically do. And we need to understand how light impacts darkness, both in our reality and metaphorically. So why exactly is darkness scary for us? Well, uh, you could probably think of lots of reasons. When you're in total darkness, you are unaware of any threats in your environment. So especially if you're in total darkness in a place that is threatening, um, every, every year, usually two or three times a year, I go to a Trappist monastery in the mountains of Colorado uh, for riding. I, I take riding retreats two or three times a year. This is my favorite place to go because this Trappist monastery is in the, at the end of a long horseshoe-shaped uh, valley in the Colorado mountains uh, with these huge peaks framing it at the back. There's this monastery that, that sits in the, in the crook of that horseshoe there. And then about a mile away, um, uh, leading up to the to the monastery, there is a retreat center that has little hermitage st stone hermitages and a and a another uh, stone building where you can stay um, for a small fee. You can stay overnight, uh, two or three, four or five nights, if you, whatever you want. And there's no wireless. There's no cell phone service. There's no nothing in this valley. It's totally silent. The, the monks themselves keep the silence. So this is the most silent place I've ever been in my life, this valley. And um, I go there, like I said, every year. And uh, the monks uh, uh, offer an invitation for anyone who's a guest staying in one of the hermitages to participate in one of the four services they have in their monastery chapel during the day. And typically, the one that I go to, this is going to sound crazy, but the one I go to is at 4.30 in the morning. I set my alarm, and I get up basically in the middle of the night to go to this short half an hour long service because the, the whole service is done in darkness. There's just one candle burning uh, in their chapel. So you enter in, and it looks completely dark, and then your eyes quickly adjust, and uh, the monks read from... Uh, three different things. They read from the Bible, a book that they're all reading, and a devotional. Um, and it's very simple. It's very quiet. It's almost eerie. And that's why I love it. But the one thing I don't like about going to this service at 4.30 in the morning is uh, getting out of bed and leaving my hermitage in utter darkness to travel a mile to the monastery. Uh, so this is in a wilderness location, and it's the middle of the night. So for whatever reason, I'm always sort of gripped by fear. When I first go out of my hermitage and get to my car so I can drive the mile down there too, and sometimes I'll, I'll walk it if I'm feeling brave, but I typically have just this sort of overshadowing sense of fear. And I think part of it is that in the in the darkness like that, there, there's some kind of psychological impact darkness has on us that that brings with it fear. Um, maybe it's because we we're not able to control all of the factors that might be influencing us. This is a wilderness location, so there's wild animals out there, and I don't know what could happen to me um, there in the darkness. So that's part of it. But um, if you know this feeling of walking into the darkness, especially if you're in a wild place, 
um, and you have this sort of foreboding sense of, of, of fear kind of lurking around you, um, it, you know that it's not just from the, uh, the existential fear of, uh, you know, somehow being attacked by a bear or a mountain lion or something like that. There's something else lurking behind there that this darkness uh, produces in us. Um, and I think in part that the darkness influences our ability to trust be, uh, because in the darkness, we can't trust our five senses as much as we typically do. Uh, uh, sight is one of those senses that uh, once it's removed, it particularly leaves us vulnerable to our circumstances. You can lose your hearing and be vulnerable, but I'd say not as vulnerable if you lose your sight because it's by our sight that we're able to uh, move through our environments and not bash into things, not put our hand on a hot stove and so forth. So, forth. so the removal of our sight or darkness coming down over us is particularly vulnerable for us and leaves us in a, in a, a, a place that would easily create fear if we were suddenly blinded. Um, and so the, the influence this has on our ability to trust is that it reveals how much we simply trust in ourselves in, a, in our typical normal life. And it exposes um, the fragility of our trust in God when we're in the darkness. So if we shine, if, if you imagine you're in a dark place, and I'm imagining that dark mountain valley right now, uh, if I do walk to that monastery in the middle of the night for that 4.30 a.m. service, I, I obviously take a flashlight with me. So if you think about uh, some setting where you typically would use a flashlight, maybe it's in your basement when you're looking for something or when the power goes out in your house, if you think about flashing that light away from you, what influence does that flashlight have when it shines in front of you? Well, it doesn't brighten your entire environment, but it can brighten um, at least a pathway around you so that you you gain back some of the control you've lost from the darkness. So when it's shined away from you, it can help to build a bridge back to trust in your environment, if, I, if you can put it that way, um, because you have at least some light on your path, some light in your environment that allows you to, to uh, make conscious decisions now and to look out for things that could be threatening to you. But it's only partial because that flashlight, of course, doesn't illuminate all of your landscape. So then, then if you took that flashlight and you, and you swung it around and you pointed it in your face, now how would that be different than when you point it out from yourself? When you point it out from yourself, you're actually helping yourself. You're, you're, you're giving yourself uh, uh, so, some information that you didn't have before that will actually help you when you swing it and show it into your face now now it feels like you're in a lineup at a police station <laughs> you know uh it now the 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 piercingness of that light in your face is can be actually painful um it's it's so powerfully revealing of your face it's hard to even open your eyes uh so light functions in both ways you know it it Light can function shining out in front of you as a help, but when it's directed on you, it can actually be painful. What it reveals can be painful. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to 
listen to a story that uh, I first saw on my favorite program, CBS Sunday Morning, a while back. There's a there's a reporter, a CBS reporter named Steve Hartman, who uh, uh, does only human interest features, and he is brilliant at it. He's won many awards for his work with CBS, and he does a regular feature on CBS Sunday Morning that looks at um, uh, uh, the life of someone who is inspiring in one way or another. You've probably seen some of his reports before. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to take a look at or to, to listen in on one of his stories about a man who is a, a military veteran who was sentenced to spend a night in jail. I thought it'd be interesting for us to listen to this story and then we'll talk about it after that. Here we go. Inside the county courthouse in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Judge Lou Oliveira made headlines with an unusual decision. You may be seated. A few years ago, Joe Cerna was arrested for drunk driving. As part of his probation, he wasn't allowed to drink. So when he lied about a recent urine test, the judge felt he had no choice. I gave Joe a night in jail because he had to be held accountable. It was just one night, but as he entered the cell, Joe says he knew it would be one of the longest nights of his life. When I walked into the jail cell and they closed the door behind me, I started feeling this um, anxiety. They came back. They came back. The flashback. Retired Army Sergeant First Class Joe Cerna did three tours in Afghanistan and has two Purple Hearts to show for it. The Green Beret survived an IED and a suicide bomber. But he says his scariest moment was the night he was riding in a truck with three other soldiers. What happened? We were, we were following uh, the creek and uh, the road gave way. And uh, the vehicle went into the creek. Truck started filling with water? Yeah. All hope was lost. Trapped and unable to move, Joe felt the water rising past his legs, then waist and neck, until finally it stopped at his chin. How many guys got out of that truck? Alive? Yeah. Just me. Uh, I was a sole survivor. Joe says it still haunts him. So I suffer PTSD. Among his issues, a fear of being in small, cramped places. I knew what Joe was going through. And I knew Joe's history, and he had to be held accountable, but I just felt I had to go with him. I, I felt I had to go with him. And so, a few minutes after Joe was locked up, Judge Lou Oliveira surprised the man he sent to jail by joining him for the entire night. We ate meatloaf, and uh, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about our families. And the walls got further apart. The walls just got, they, they, they didn't exist anymore. He brought me back to North Carolina from being in a truck in Afghanistan. This past week, Joe promised the judge no more mess ups. I don't want you down ever. It's not how law and order usually works. But sometimes jail is not what a man needs. Sometimes the best sentence is compassion. Thank you for bringing me. Okay, there you have it, Steve Hartman and his story of Joe Cerna, military veteran, whose judge, when he sentenced him to jail, 
sentenced himself to jail to, to, to be with him. So if you think about this story, which is very moving and has so much um, sort of metaphoric impact uh, relative to Jesus and the gospel, um, if you think about this story, how, how did Joe Cerna, this military vet, actually experience light in this story? Well, if you turn the flashlight on your face, so you think about Joe not being let off. He, the judge sentences him to jail because he needed to experience the consequence of what he had done. And just because he was a military veteran, just because he had PTSD, the judge didn't feel that he could turn the flashlight off of Joe's face. Um, the light needed to be shined on Joe uh, in order for him to taste this consequence and have a marker in his life that would help him to never do this again. So really the light in his face from the judge in this case is one form of love. Um, clearly the, the judge was concerned about him, his life descending into a pattern of this kind of thing. And the only loving thing to do would be to allow Joe to experience the consequence of it. But um, then Joe experiences another kind of light in this experience where he, where the, the judge unexpectedly shows up to spend the night with him, a different kind of light, a light that points out from the two of them uh, to hope. Um, and, and in that dark, confining cell, the judge's presence became a light to him that uh, I will walk this path with you. If you're a, a longtime listener to the podcast, you probably heard me tell this story before, but um, it was a pivotal moment in my life. When I was uh, 23, 24 years old, I was out of college and I was working for a summer as a counselor at a camp for inner city kids in the Colorado mountains. And this camp uh, specialized in serving kids who were um, low income and from very difficult neighbors in uh, very difficult neighborhoods in the, in the Denver area. Most of these kids had some sort of gang connection and many of them had never been in the mountains before. They had never stayed in a cabin before. They had never had the kind of camp experiences that you, you grow up having. And one uh, that, that summer, uh, I had heard ahead of time from the camp leaders that one of my campers uh, was uh, notorious. He, he had come for several summers. His name was Kenyon. And he was uh, notoriously always getting into fights. And uh, they just wanted to warn me that I would have my hands full when this kid, kid showed up. And of course I did. Kenyon was this little guy, had a huge afro, uh, but he just had a chip on his shoulder like it was incredible. So from the almost in the first half hour he was at the camp, he was already in a fight. And uh, inside of that first, uh, first day, or maybe it was the second day, I had to pull him off of uh, a couple of other bigger kids that he was wailing away on, on the soccer field. And I dragged him off of him. He was, you know, cursing at me and calling me all kinds of names and spitting at me and thrashing. And as I had my uh, grip on his arm, I dragged him away from the soccer field. And I told him that, uh, I told him, Kenyon, you and I are going to run the hill. Well, that was the discipline method our camp used. It, we had about a, a quarter mile dirt mile, uh, dirt, dirt road track that led up to the camp. And it was a seven or 8% grade, very steep. 
And uh, the, the discipline that we would use when a camper really screwed up is you would have to walk down the hill with that camper and then the two of you would run up the hill. And uh, I got around the little grove of trees so that the, pe the kids on the soccer field couldn't see us anymore and Kenyon just plopped down in the dirt. I, I, I was shocked by this. Uh, he just plopped down in the dirt and he started sobbing. I just couldn't believe this kid had made such a huge change. But uh, I sat down next to him and I, I kept pleading with him, Kenyon, tell me what's wrong. Finally, through his sobs, what he told me is he said, um, my parents don't love me. And I said, Kenyon, your parents sent you to this camp. I don't believe your parents don't love you. And he said, no, no, they don't love me. And I said, why, why are you saying that? And he said, they don't care or know where I am. They don't care about what time I come in. They don't care about what I do in my life. I can do anything I want. And then he just sobbed until he didn't have any tears left. And when he was finally done, I said, Kenyon, uh, we're going to run the hill together now. And we walked down to the bottom of the hill and then ran up. And uh, what I realized in that moment is that the discipline that I was giving Kenyon was, it was, um, interpreted by him rightly as love and he had not often experienced the the boundaries around discipline in his life so he was experiencing love and that's what really got to him and this was for me as a young man it was a revelation i uh, it helped me to understand god's care and personality in my life that there are times in my life where he's going to have to run the hill with me and just like the joe joe cerna story um, he'll run it with me, just like I ran it with Kenyon, and just like the judge uh, uh, spent the night in the cell with Joe. Um, he will discipline us. He will shine the light in our face, but he'll also shine it out from us to give us a hope that, uh, that, that we wouldn't have otherwise if he wasn't there with us. It's the, it's the discipline with us that really is the light that we're desperately needing when we've had the light shine in our face in one way or another. So what's interesting is that um, we're talking about the loss of our sight and the darkness that that brings, but scripture spotlights a huge number of times that Jesus specifically heals blindness. It's not just the, the quantity of these stories, the stories of blindness being healed are also qualitative in the sense that they're very detailed. Um, some of the most detailed stories about healing in, the, in scripture are when Jesus heals those who are blind. And the question then is, well, why? Why is there such a focus on healing blind people in Jesus' uh, Jesus's ministry? And I think it has to do with some of the things we've already been talking about here, that this blindness, this darkness, um, is in contrast to his light. So he's particularly sensitive to those living in darkness and the vulnerability and undermining of trust that happens in the midst of that darkness. Just as the judge is particularly sensitive to Joe Cerna's metaphoric darkness, going back into this confined cell and what that would mean to him, he enters into that darkness with him. He wants him to... Uh, live through the, that experience of darkness with light. And so Jesus particularly is concerned about those who are struggling 
in the midst of their darkness. And he wants to bring light into that because there is something about darkness that is different than every other kind of healing that he offers. Um, he, he has a particular reason he's focusing on it. So, so I thought it'd be interesting just to, to hop around a little bit um, to some stories about Jesus bringing light into environments and, and think about the function of light in each one of these passages and what the impact of the light that Jesus brings, uh, what, what kind of impact it brings, and then why that impact is good. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to take a look at a few, a few of these and just hop around a little bit and think about light as we go through them. So the first one is from John chapter one. It's the opening words of the Gospel of John. They're quite famous, some of the most iconic words in all of the Bible. But uh, I want you to think about those questions as I'm reading this. What, what, what is the uh, function of light in this passage? And what impact does light have and why is it good? So here we go. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Let's just stop there. So here, Jesus is described as the Word, and that in the beginning, during in creation, this Word gives life to everything that was created. So literally, uh, the life that's within us, that thing that makes us alive, the source of that is Jesus himself. And then it says his life brought light to everyone and that that light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the function of light here is to expose what was hidden before to, to uh, bring everyone into a place of hope instead of a place of dread. Because with, when the light is turned on, we have hope again. We have our ability to uh, live and breathe and move in our environment when the light goes on. And the, then the secondary hope here is that this darkness can never extinguish the light. That the light, that darkness actually uh, in, its, in its primary definition is the absence of light. So wherever Jesus is not must be dark because his light is the source of all, uh, of all light in the universe. Maybe a picture of why the disciples saw Jesus transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. Well, in our own uh, created world, the, the sun um, gives light and energy to literally everything. We would not have artificial light without the natural light of the sun. So if you track back every source of light in our life, it all goes back to the sun. So metaphorically, without the sun, we would have no light of any kind. And it's, the sun there is planted in our solar system as a metaphoric reminder to us of the truth about Jesus' presence in our lives. That if Jesus is removed from our lives, how deep is our darkness? And the darkness here. It's both physical and metaphorical. The darkness that's described, how deep is your darkness, means that we are without hope. 
and the hope that we most need comes with Jesus. Let's move to another one. This is John 3, 16 through 21. Here Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to visit him at night, and here's what it says. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. The people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see what they're doing, that what they're doing, so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Sorry for messing up the last part of that. So here the function of light is to expose. And, and, he's, and uh, John is saying, or Jesus is saying that to Nicodemus, that the only reason people love the darkness is because they want to do evil, and they can't do evil uh, if it's exposed. So here light functions uh, uh, in, in the realm of exposure. And those who are nervous about being exposed will avoid the light. They don't want anything to do with the light. But those who are, who are clean, clean of conscious, conscience, clean of motivation, they're not afraid of the light. If the light comes, the light comes. They're, they're just not afraid of what, of what the light brings into their life. So here you, you might say um, – you might say that the light uh, functions like the flashlight in our face. Here, the, the, the flashlight in our face, though it's painful, the only reason it's painful is because of its exposure. And the exposure itself is a gift of love because sin is like a sin and evil doing, if you want to call it that, is like a cancer that will eat away and eventually destroy our soul. So uh, if, if you're a loving God, you don't stand by while your beloved self-destructs. You invite. And the way that you invite is by shining light on your life to expose what's being done in the darkness so that repentance is a real possibility. We won't repent unless what's going on inside of us is exposed to the light. And when it is, we have a chance to restore our relationship with God and restore our relationship with others. Let's move to John 8, 12 through 20. This is just after Jesus rescues the woman caught in adultery. And she, uh, Jesus is still there with the crowd surrounding him in the temple after he has rescued this woman caught in adultery. Remember, he, he, uh, he, he writes in the dirt, a little uh, circle in the dirt, and, uh, and basically says to those that have stones in their hands, if you're without sin, throw the first stone, and they all end up dropping their stones. So there's the setting for this. He's still with that crowd uh, right after he's done this, and here's what he says. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to light. Well, the Pharisees replied, you're making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. And Jesus told them, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. 
but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. Well, I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father? They asked. Jesus answered, Since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. So here, light we see in in this encounter with the Pharisees is uh, when Jesus says that he is the light and that if you follow the light, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have a light in front of your path always. Um, And that light, he's saying, leads to life. So here he's trying to get through to the Pharisees who are upset and offended and on guard with Jesus that the, that the light that they're, that they're right then rejecting actually is leading them to, to the life their soul hungers for. We don't generate light within ourselves just as we don't have the sun inside of ourselves. The light that we need comes from outside of ourselves. Those who say that all you need is yourself. All you need really is your own self-will and determination. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. They're not recognizing the macro reality that if you, had, if you did not have a source of light outside of yourself, you could do nothing. Um, in fact, our experience of the world is a built-in reminder that we are dependent. And here Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. If you depend on me by following me, I will lead you to the life that you hunger for. So embedded in this little phrase too is the, 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 the sure knowledge that where Jesus is leading us by his light is good. It will be good for us. So um, the, the, the idea that Jesus could, um, the idea that Jesus would, shine a light on our path and that he would lead us over a cliff is anathema to his own heart and character. No, he will not lead us over a cliff. Um, no, th- this is not going to happen. Um, he's going to lead us to a good place. That's his message. All right, let's uh, do a couple more here before we close off. The next one's from John chapter 11. This is what happens just before Jesus travels to raise Lazarus from the dead, his friend Lazarus, who he's allowed to die uh, by waiting three days before he goes to visit him. So here's, here's what it says. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, this is, he's talking to his disciples when, he, when he's heard that Lazarus is sick and, and Jesus needs to go right away. So here it says, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus replied, well, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there's a danger of stumbling because they have no light. 
Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. So here Jesus is talking about that there are 12 hours of daylight every day. Again, a metaphor for us that our days are split into two. Half of them are light, half of them are dark. He intends for us to experience what both of those things feel like. So that, if, so think of this, if, if the light never left you, like if you were on one of the poles, um, the North or South Pole, and you lived there when there was no night whatsoever, think of the way that that would change the, rhythm, the rhythms of your life. There's something about this division of darkness and light in our life that Jesus uh, planted from the beginning in creation, that there's this desire that we experience the onset of life into our darkness. So here Jesus says there's 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there's a dangerous stumbling because they have no light. So here the function of light is to allow us to walk safely, um, to, to help us to avoid stumbling because we have no light. And metaphorically, what he's saying is, you are a people who your default setting is stumbling. You are always stumbling for one reason or another all the time. And that's because you're living in the darkness. I have come to shine light on what is true and good. And if you will follow me, you'll walk safely. But again, you can't generate that life yourself. So it's in following me that you find your safety. It's in following me that you avoid stumbling. I will shine the light in front of you and I will shine the light on you in both circumstances to help you to have agency over your path. You can avoid the rocks in front of you. Our choices matter because our choices either lead to life or death, either to building up or to destroy. And Jesus is saying here, walk in the day so that you don't stumble. Uh, last two here, or maybe we'll just do this one last one. Matthew chapter four, this happens right after Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness. This is where he's um, just beginning his ministry. So here's what it says. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, this is John the Baptist, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, which is his hometown, and then he left there and moved to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah. So here's Isaiah prophesying about the nature of the coming Messiah hundreds and hundreds of years from when he first prophesied this. Here's what it says in Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beyond the sea, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's interesting, you might not have ever noticed this before, but in this prophecy from Isaiah, um, he makes particular mention of where Jesus grew up and spent most of his time. 
It's in this land where so many Gentiles live. These are people who, from the dawn of their time, had no hope. They were told over and over again that the chosen ones, the Jews, were the only ones who had hope. And that the Gentiles, if you can imagine it, if you can imagine your life right now, by nature of your race and where you were born, you have zero hope of salvation according to the standard customs of the day, the religious customs of your day, that you have no hope of life eternal and therefore no hope in life itself, that you're reduced to finding your own hope, whatever that is, reduced to trying to generate your own light in your life and experiencing what a miserable uh, failure that is. If you can imagine that that's your reality and that Jesus, the light of the world, is born into this pagan culture where there's so many Gentiles live, where it Isaiah describes the people sat in darkness. But, but when the Messiah comes to be among them, they see a great light. And in this land where death casts a long shadow over their lives, a light shines. They have hope. The meaning of life and the function of light here is hope. And hope not just circumstantially, but hope that restoration of our relationship with God can lead to the restoration of our soul. That can drag us up out of the pit of our darkness and put us on a shining hill. As Jesus said, hey, if you have light in you, if you have a lamp, you don't hide it under a bushel, you put it on a mountaintop. And that light that comes now to live in us through his spirit, Jesus wants to set it up on the, on the top of a mountain so that it can shine light for everyone. And when he speaks this way, he's speaking about you and me. He wants the light that is him that now lives within us to generate light through our life and uh, shed light on the paths of so many others who, like these Gentiles who are sitting in darkness, are craving hope and light. So what Jesus is saying is, now because you are my body, you are the hope and light in the world. You are the ones bringing light with you into all the dark places of the world. The function of the body of Christ is to carry light into darkness. And you can see it lived out right now in Corona land, all over the world. I love that there's a uh, uh, John Krasinski, who was, of course, uh, Jim on The Office and has since gone on to, to um, play Jack Ryan right now on, the, on, a, uh, on a Netflix series and, and wrote and directed the two Quiet Place movies. Um, he, he has started... Uh, a new, what he calls an online network, a virtual network called Some Good News. And uh, his first foray into this, uh, I think it was uh, a couple of days ago, um, got huge attention around the world, actually. It's just a 15-minute program about good news. And it's story after story about people um, bringing light and love and hope into others' lives. The, the, these stories actually reflect the foundational truth about who we are, that we are created in the image of God and that it is, goes deep into our, into our uh, redeemed nature to bring light wherever we can, light and hope to others. Um, these stories of good news, and we'll put a link to uh, John Krasinski's little 15-minute show. I think he's going to do it once a week 
Now, it's, it's well worth watching because you'll see examples of, of uh, what the body of Jesus looks like. Even when people don't realize that they're spreading the hope of Jesus around, when you offer unconditional love to others to bring light into their life, you are acting like Jesus in their life. So uh, the place where so many Gentiles live, people who have no hope outside of themselves, all of a sudden, they're given that hope because the light from outside of themselves comes to live in their neighborhood, comes to bring them light and hope. There you have it, gang. Um, there's Jesus, Jesus in the dark. So, you know, in the, in the darkness, if we didn't have darkness, we couldn't appreciate light and its function. So if you're in a place right now where you're listening to this and you can just close your eyes for a minute, do that. Just close your eyes. Experience what darkness feels like for a minute. And there in your darkness, um, what's a word that you could offer to Jesus that expresses the darkness you feel right now? As you, with your eyes closed like this, what's, what word comes to your mind that expresses the darkness that you are living through right now? I'm just going to give you a moment to pause and just throw that word out to Jesus as an offering to him, as a way of saying, I'm choosing to follow you, the light, Jesus. I need you. I, I don't want the darkness to consume or overshadow me. So whatever that word is, I'm just going to pause here for a minute. Just speak it out loud now. All right, there you go, gang. Just like uh, the widow offering the mite into the offering pot, that's our offering of the day, to offer Jesus whatever our darkness is and to invite his light into our life. Gang, uh, this is season five, episode 13 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can uh, get the links to the things we've talked about today. If you'll go to paying and look for season five, episode 13, you'll see links to all these things and also a link to join the Pigs Facebook page. Uh, that's a private uh, Facebook page for the, those who listen to this podcast and want to be in community with others who are also listeners of the podcast. It's a fascinating place where people come around one another to support each other, to ask questions, to, to uh, offer uh, hope and guidance for each other and sometimes just to laugh. So uh, there'll be a link to the pigs page on that page as well. Thanks again for listening. Hold, uh, uh, hold on, gang. Light is coming, and it's not a train coming the, down, the, down the tracks toward you. The light is coming. Let's, let's hang in there together. This is a podcast, by the way, sponsored by Lifetree, and you could subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again next week.